0: I'll choose my words carefully. And I went in there in 2007 and there was a really small search engine in Mountain View, California, that didn't like other search engines. Let's just say they made it incredibly hard for us to exist as a search engine.
1: Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You know, one of the things I'm most passionate about is finding great blogs and podcasts to follow.
2: And for some reason, it's, it's really hard. It is hard. I've said it before and I'll say it again on this show, Dan. The internet is getting smaller. What do you mean the internet's getting smaller? When I say that, I mean (laughs) when I go to Google and I type in my search term, I get all the hits, everything that you would imagine that would come up, right? So I want to search news. I get the New York Times, I get the Washington Post, I get CNN. It is very hard for me to find. Someone that is reporting outside of the sphere of what we would traditionally call news these days. And a lot of times, these are the most interesting people and the most informed people on the topics that I want to hear about.
1: Yeah, and once upon a time, there was a company that highlighted blogs themselves. You know, websites written from practitioners. And many of you might remember Technorati.com. And during this quest for great blogs, I got curious as to why this company went away. During and you know, I justify this going down the rabbit hole, it could be good for the show. It turned out that I found the former CEO of Technorati and started reading up on him. And turned out that he was involved in all sorts of projects that's touched my life. So not only Technorati, but Map My Ride, which is a cycling app, ClickBank, which many of the listeners of this show have used, bodybuilding.com, among many, many others. So I felt like there was a story here. So I reached out to the former CEO of Technorati.
0: Well, my first name is pretty easy, Richard, but my last name is pronounced Jolly Chandra.
1: This is going to be completely painless. We edit this quite a bit. So if you want to take a restart at anything or if you say anything that you don't want to go live in the show, we'll edit it out for you. Just let us know.
0: So I happen to blurt my pin out or something like that?
1: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Ian, it really turned out that Richard has had a really fascinating career, and life generally. So that's where we start in this interview. If you stick with me, we're going to get to the story of what happened to that blog search engine, Technorati. You down for this? I'm down. Let's do it. So let's start with the latter, the fascinating backstory of what led to Richard's career. This episode and all its show notes are going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Jelly Chandra.
0: Grew up in Southern California, went to college at USC, graduated when I was 20 in three years, largely because I couldn't afford to pay for four years. And that, that was actually a really critical juncture in my life And that I wanted to go to a certain school, couldn't afford it, but found a way to to afford it by just, you know, compressing it into a really short period of time. While I was going to school in 3 years, I was also working full time. So, that was probably a huge formative event that allowed me to do a whole bunch of things at the same time, work like a maniac just in terms of effort and output to be able to get through it. Didn't necessarily do as well as you, you know, you would like to do, but it was just necessary to kind of get through it.
1: Let's talk about your first career steps.
0: I did this typical thing when you graduate with one business degree, you get into a management training program. You know, the other weird thing that kind of put me through school was I was a political consultant. Started off, you know, working for a political consultant, you know, doing admin, you know, copy, collate, staple work. And by the time I graduated from college, they were flying me all over the state of California. And I was advising campaigns and PACs out of how to raise money and do campaign strategy. Nobody had any idea how old I was, but I put on a cheap <laughs> suit that my mom bought me and a tie. And, and people would think I was like 10 years older than I was. And then I went to grad school and went very corporate, worked for, at the time, back in the 80s, they were number two and five on the Fortune 500. And that was Ford Motor Company and IBM. Those two places, you know, taught me a lot about what I didn't want for my career.
1: Tell me about that.
0: At the time, both those companies had over 400,000 employees. I didn't really fit in there. You know, another really key formative thing about my personality is I'm dyslexic. So, you know, anything with a lot of structure and process, I don't really do that well. I grew up in a different time and age where it wasn't readily diagnosed. I found out I was dyslexic in my second year of grad school. So I went through, you know, (laughs) an entire life of academia, struggling and figuring out ways just to kind of get better at learning. But dyslexics also have some superhuman powers as well. And this is why you find so many entrepreneurs that are dyslexic. So a couple of things they're really good at is they're, they're really good at listening because they can't read as well. They're really good at processing verbal and visual information. So I had the capacity to, to learn and really scan situations very, very quickly, simply because you're entirely dependent on that to kind of get by. So that's, you know, a major superhuman skill, which when you get put into an entrepreneurial environment, you know, that's the whole thing. There is no structure. There is no process. You have to figure everything out kind of on the fly really fast or you sink and, and fail. It turned into something that I call one of my greatest strengths. But, but, you know, when you're growing up, it doesn't really feel like a strength. You feel like, you know, you're on the verge of failure all the time. So you
1: started to realize that you weren't going to be successful in this sort of big company. What did you do next?
0: I worked at IBM for two years and then I worked at Ford for almost three years. The poignant moment that ended my career at Ford Motor Company was we were celebrating, it was like a weekday morning, but we were celebrating somebody's 40th anniversary with the company. And of course, you know, he's recounting story. We're eating cake and drinking coffee and, you know, he's recounting this story of his 40-year career. And I realized that... You know, he'd essentially done the same job for 40 years. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, a lot of people are very happy doing one thing for their you know, entire life or whatever. But for me, that made my head want to explode. After that party, I literally went back to my desk. There was a copy of the Sunday travel section there, and I looked in the classifieds. This is, again, pre-internet. I looked in the classifieds and, and looked for uh, air brokers and bought an around-the-world ticket that day. <laughs> I quit and that led to the great odyssey of of my life.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about it because you mentioned you were supposed to, you had planned five months for this sort of get the heck out of here trip. What ended up happening?
0: Yeah, I bought a, an around the world ticket, you know, that had, I don't know how many legs in it and I scheduled it, I had a year to do it, but I, I only had five months to do it in my life plan at the time. I had a friend who we had been talking about starting a chain of fast food pasta restaurants, and he had some things to finish up in his job. So five months was kind of the right time, and, and I figured that was enough time for me to go around the world and do all the things that I wanted to do. So I, I go off on this so-called five-month trip. About six months into it, I'm like less than a quarter of the way around the world <laughs> and I basically wrote a letter to my partner and my investors and said, you know, sorry, I'm not coming home. Never ended up using the entire ticket. I just kind of like stopped in Southeast Asia and started traipsing around, and the five months ended up turning into 25 months of continuous travel, and ultimately, the five months ended up resulting in 10 years overseas.
1: You mentioned you were broke a lot of the time when you were doing this. How important was that to your you feel like your eventual business success?
0: It's hugely, hugely important. And one of the things about being poor, and it's not necessarily being poor, it's just being financially constrained and not having the resources to do whatever the heck you want to do. It makes you desperate's not the right word but it really makes you focus on making sure that you have what you need to kind of do what you need to do so i think it's a really you know again goes back to like another superhuman strength that you get that you that's absolutely required in the entrepreneurial world is you have to learn to be able to do without You have to learn to be able to deal with long-term stress and challenge. I mean, it really, really creates a a grit and determination. I wasn't poor through most of the travel. I mean, I'd saved a bunch of money working in corporate America. But after two years, it eventually ran out. And I I found myself, you know, with... I remember there was one point where I had enough money to buy a one-way ticket home from Singapore, and I would have $300 left. And then I would have to go live with my parents. And I just said, that's not happening. (laughs) My first job teaching English was actually teaching four year olds nursery school English in Singapore. And wow, what a hard job teaching is. I remember also walking into a school, you know, I was like going, God, maybe I could teach English at a college or something like that. And I walked in and and said, hey, you know, I want to teach English. And they looked at my resume and said, well, you have an MBA, this is a business school. Would you like to lecture? I'm like, gee, I bet that pays better. And he's like, yep, pays better. So I ended up lecturing for a couple of years at a business college there. And the other thing that I started doing over a few years, you know, while I was teaching part-time and traveling, I also became a very well-published travel writer in Southeast Asia. And this is pre-internet. So like today to get, you know, published online, you know, anybody can put a blog post up and you're published. But actually getting published in print was a big deal, you know, pre-internet. And I was published about 150 times over a three or four year period.
1: What did you think your life was going to be at this point?
0: Well, there was a brief period of time where I thought I was, I had this, you know, romantic view of just being a bohemian wanderer for my, my life. I was dating a woman at the time who was really into, you know, NGO and, and doing good for the world. and, You know, she was very inspiring to me that I wanted to go do something similar. And I remember one day she she just turned to me and said, you know, you're really not good at this. (laughs) (laughs) And you probably could do more good in the world by going back into the business world, but just doing it in an ethical, good way. And that really struck me. And I was like, but first, first thing is like realizing you're not good at something and you're even though you're trying really hard it's not your natural habitat and your way that was a a big eye-opener and then the second thing was i mean she was almost giving me permission to go actually do what i was good at and that was you know conduct business and so that really resonated with me
1: i gotta say i love having sponsors for this show it's allowed us to grow our team and we want to do more with the podcast so thank you to our sponsors today's sponsor deserves thanks growth ninja.com and i'm going to link up to an episode where you can hear the story of how growth ninja started and what's even cooler is that growth ninjas created incredible results for many listeners of this show let me read a case study from former guest Russ Perry, the founder of Design Pickle. He said, without a doubt, Facebook ads have been the number one lead generation source for making this work, That and he's speaking about their incredible growth. It's working so well that 20% of their current customers came from the Facebook funnel that Growth Ninja set up for them. And the best part is Growth Ninja's pricing is performance-based, so you're not paying a flat rate. You pay when you get profits. So what do you have to lose? Go ahead and check it out. It's growthninja.com, and when you go over there, let them know that the TMBA Pod sent you. What was your first gig that you were like, I'm on the track, what was your rearrival into the business world?
0: So I'm using Singapore kind of as my hub and spoke, and I'm you know spending a ton of time in Indonesia, Thailand, you know, Vietnam, I'm just all over the place. There's a lot of publishers there for in-flight magazines and travel magazines and whatnot in Singapore. So I was also selling a bunch of articles there, and that's where the woman I was dating lived as well at the time. And I remember she, she took me to a party, and I was a guy who, you know, at IBM and four was wearing grey pinstripe suits, white button-down shirts, and red ties with wingtip shoes. At that point in my life, though, I was, you know, had kind of longish, you know, shoulder-length hair, a goatee, wore mala beads. And in Singapore at the time, it was pretty straight-laced. I mean, everybody there were in $3,000 Hugo Boss suits. And and there I am sitting there dressed like a hippie. And I was <laughs> talking to these two guys who were incredibly well-coffed. And, and they were just like, I, I mean, we were just talking about kind of what I was doing. And, and they're like, well, have you ever tried ad copywriting? And I'm like, no, but I'm, you know, willing to try. (laughs) And uh, it turns out one guy was the head of Young and Rubicum, YNR for Southeast Asia, and uh, he was with an investment banking client. And the YNR guy says, well, we've been looking for an English language copywriter who understands financial jargon, who can write in financial jargon, and we can't find anybody short of flying somebody from London or New York. Would you like to try this freelance copywriting gig? And I'm like heck yeah, why not? What does it pay? And and then they kind of like told me, and everything equated into like you know every time I wrote an article, it was for travel magazines. Which, by the way, it pays like crap. I don't recommend travel writing as a, a career. I mean, you you will starve. But I always equated everything to like how long I could travel. You know, if if I wrote that article, they told me the, the amount that for this three week copywriting gig, and I was like, well, I could travel for four months on that. <laughs> i jumped at it and next thing i know i'm i'm writing print headlines for burberry you know clothes and tv commercials and stuff and and in this three-week thing i'm like a light bulb goes off in my head well in it and finance all the marketing no matter where you are in the world all the marketing is done in english and so i'm like going wait a second i'm a pretty good writer and i've got an unfair competitive advantage that i'm a native speaker I understand financial jargon. I'd worked at IBM, so I had some technical jargon. So I started an agency. It wasn't really an agency. I started more as a freelance copywriter that just specialized in IT and finance stuff. My business plan at that point was I just literally went to every agency in Singapore and Jakarta, for that matter, and basically became kind of the go-to, one of the go-to guys in the region for writing IT and finance. Then, you know, one of the most formative meetings of my entire life happened. My, one of my brochure clients was Singapore Telecom, and it was January 1994. You know, they called me in for just, you know, one of my normal meetings with them. And, you know, one of the marketing directors, you know, said, hey, have you ever heard of the World Wide Web? And I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know much about it. I mean, I think I'd read about it in Time Magazine. I mean, you know, again, we're pre-internet here. And I had some friends who were like playing around with email and stuff like that. You know, my answer to the question was, yes. What about it? Well, can you build us a website? And I just proceeded to ask questions for about forty-five minutes, and they essentially gave me a spec of what they wanted. And I remember, you know, going down to after the meeting. I'm like, going, "Oh God, I'm going to build a website, and, and this is internet thing, and you know, whatever." But I don't know what the heck I'm even talking about or anything about it. I had one friend who was kind of, you know, a little bit nerdy, and I remember getting down the elevator, and this is back in the days before cell phones even, so I had a pager, and I went to a payphone, and I paged my friend, and I'm like, what's a website? (laughs) And then he starts to try and give me a very academic answer, and I just scream at him, shut up, shut up, shut up, can you actually make one for me? And he's like, yeah, I think so, and that's how I got in the World Wide Web. Unbelievable that basically has been my career ever since
1: reading your story is so fascinating to me you keep ending up somehow at the top of the heap you know you end up as a guy that people look to for leadership as someone who's successful what's your narrative about yourself why is it you that ends up in those positions and other people not
0: i think a lot of it has to do with the sales and marketing background when you can you know create revenue it solves a lot of problems and gets a lot of attention so that's been a, a hugely powerful thing in my career is that, you know, if you if you can make rain, you know, typically people will will follow.
1: Ian this jumped out at me because in some ways Richard has had the kind of experience that so many that listen to this podcast have had. You know, he left the job, he planned to come back home, but ended up just staying in Asia and earning money in ways that he probably never could have predicted before he went reminds me of a couple of things. Like for Americans, we all know, like there was this idea of go West, you know, and that was like the frontier. You didn't know what was going to happen out there, but it was probably better than what you had back home, you know? Right. And in our generation, you've seen a lot of people, they're either going East to Asia where the economy is vibrant and moving fast or going online, which is sort of the
2: same frontier. I'd say going online is a big pivot from where our previous generations were doing, which is going to institutions. Absolutely. So how did Richard end
1: up back in the United States and at one of the most influential internet products of the early 2000s? And specifically, I'm leading to the point where we talk about Technorati, which is why I contacted Richard in the first place. I had asked everybody that I knew about Technorati, and I got As many stories as people I asked. And everybody just assumed that Technorati was a business that was destined to fail because it was focused on blogs and like blogs aren't important anymore. And now the new thing is social media or Facebook or whatever. And I just thought to myself, that can't be true because I love blogs and blogs still exist and there should be something like this. And so it's part of why this whole episode exists is that curiosity there. And my unwillingness to believe that a product like this would just disappear out of thin air. But that's exactly what happened. Can you give me some insight into your time at Technorati? This was a product that I was in love with because I'm in love with the blogosphere. Like that's what you need to know about me is that I'm both nostalgic and passionate about the blogosphere. I'm a regular blogger. Since the blogosphere first started, I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I still try to blog every week. And so when Technorati just sort of quietly disappeared, I was so disappointed because it was sort of the only real hub on the internet that was showing what this space really was. So can you tell me about how you ended up there and what your experience was like there?
0: Yeah, so, and I'll preface that by saying I'll choose my words carefully, and it'll probably become apparent, you know, after. The company was founded by Dave a brilliant entrepreneur, you know, visionary in many different areas of digital media. And, you know, Technorati was one of the bright early stars of Web 2.0, and I was brought in to kind of take the reins from Dave to kind of hopefully take it to another level. But if you remember, Technorati was essentially the uh, directory of the blogosphere. It was a blog search engine. It was actually, I think, the very first real-time search engine in the internet. If you posted a link, it was in the index immediately and being spit out and ranked and you know whatnot. Before that, you know, most of these st- search engines were really static directories. Now, you gotta think back to what 2007 is like. The company was founded, I think, in 2003. And like I said, it was one of the early Web 2.0 darlings and, and really innovative and, and influential. I went in there in 2007, and there was a really small search engine in Mountain View, California, that didn't like other search engines. Let's just say they made it incredibly hard for us to exist as a search engine.
1: And for anyone who isn't familiar with this story, that small search engine in Mountain View was and still is Google and I don't think there's so many listeners to this show that aren't aware of how Google operates. That is take no prisoners and do business on their terms.
0: But I don't think anybody foresaw you know that we would lose you know I remember one afternoon in early 2008 you know we lost 85% of our traffic in 45 minutes. So it became very clear that we were not going to be able to do what Technorati had you know, been known for. So we had to do a massive pivot and we ended up becoming one of the very first social media ad networks. You know, we leveraged all the contacts we had, not just in the blogosphere, but other social sites and whatever to kind of create a social media ad network. I mean. That's what happened to Technorati.com, the actual website. It just became very hard to compete. It was also a very hard technical challenge to keep it running. Real time search at the time was incredibly expensive to execute. Today it's actually real really easy. You know, at the time we had a data center with twelve hundred servers in it, you know, spinning real time data to basically give you a search result. These days you could do the same thing with, you know, a couple of boxes on AWS. So it was hard from a technical financial standpoint and then the competitive standpoint just made it completely untenable.
1: It's kind of a strange question, but I look at your career and I think you've done so many amazing things and you've done so many things that there must have been so many ups and downs and so many conflicts and so many challenges and things like that. And then I think to that one moment when you lost your traffic in 45 minutes, you have a bunch of staff, you have a bunch of souls on board, so to speak, that you have to pay for you have a company that has tons of fans, a lot of public visibility.
0: Also a lot of critics.
1: <laughs> a lot of critics, take me to that moment, like what's that day like for you emotionally?
0: Really hard, really hard. And this is something I learned you know, in that job that being a CEO or a founder I've never really founded, you know, outside of my agencies and some consulting things and a fund, I really haven't founded a digital startup. I've usually gone in and taken over it, but I've been in the CEO chair. It's a really lonely job. And the same thing being a founder. They're unlike any other job that you could have in a company because, for example, when the bottom falls out like it did, you know, in that one hour, you can't let people know how bad it really is (laughs) and I'm not talking about like not being transparent or anything like that but you can't you can't let your troops know how close they are to death you can tell them there's a concerning situation they get it they get it but you know when you're having a near-death experience you have to suck it up and, and show confidence and resolve that you've got it, and uh, that's a hard thing to do, and that's what makes it such a lonely job. Same time, the flip side of that is when you're really successful. If you're going to be any kind of you know decent leader, you can't you know gloat at the success either. <laughs> you've got to kind of like swallow that and just like internalize it and give as much credit to everybody else but yourself. And those are two extremes. It's like, well, it's the best of times or the worst of times, you know, you kind of have to internalize those things. And it becomes, like I said, a very lonely feeling.
1: One of the things that's going on in my life is I've been critiqued lately as someone who's conflict averse. My peacemaking tendencies tend to get in the way of being effective. Of course, I'm always reading selfishly. I'm reading your bio and everything. I'm thinking, I wonder if Richard's really good at existing in conflict. I wonder if you're the type of person that can deal with people not liking you. How do you feel about that in general? Because you, you're getting a lot of hate in these situations for sure.
0: I don't have any words of wisdom. It's really hard, it's challenging, it's incredibly stressful in my You know, nine years traipsing around Asia, you know, I also studied meditation and yoga and learned to be a lot more patient and and wise and, and sit with things versus react to them. I mean, everybody's got their own stress coping mechanisms, but yeah, no, it doesn't feel good when people hate you and they don't know you and they don't know why you're doing what you're doing or why you had to do something. It is what it is. It's just... I ended up in this career arc where I was put into these, frankly, I'm known as a turnaround guy. So I get put in these situations where there's already chaos and conflict and, and frankly, you know, probably negative momentum. I wish I got the clean up and to the right deal that screamed and you know, was easy, easy earth or never easy, but that's not the hand I was dealt.
1: You mentioned earlier dyslexia being a superpower. How do you think about your strengths and weaknesses in the context of running these companies?
0: Well, I mean, the older you get, the more stupid you realize you are. (laughs) I mean, that in itself, that self-awareness and growing self-awareness becomes a superpower and and it's a necessary superpower. And every time you think that you're really self-aware, then a year later you're like going, oh my God, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about then. I have no qualms bringing in people who are way smarter than me at, at different functional areas, you know, simply because you learn to let go of your ego when you realize at the end of the day, it's in your own self-interest to let go of your ego and, and hire smarter people than you and, and do that. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't own me.
1: You went on to have a hand in so many products that I am like a passionate user of, which really surprised me. You know, Technorati, you went on to be a part of Map My Ride, which I'm a paying member of. And then (laughs) Bodybuilding.com, which is one of the biggest forums on the web. Everybody's ended up there at one point or another to ClickBank. I mean, there's not a single listener of this podcast that hasn't used ClickBank at one time or another. Was Technorati the biggest challenge in terms of that moment, or was that just another Wednesday? Was there just regular times like that that came up in all of these businesses?
0: That was probably the biggest challenge because it was my first time actually being a CEO of something other than my own agency, which was a really small company. So that was my first time in the chair, so to speak. And I'd had an incredible experience and mentorship with IGN Entertainment where the CEO of IGN basically kind of allowed me to act like, you know, air quotes again, the assistant CEO, and let me, you know, sit at the table and help make decisions, you know, things I was totally unqualified to make decisions around. When I was riding shotgun, I ultimately wasn't the responsible one. He was, and, and then all of a sudden you're, you're realizing, and that's, again, gets to the loneliness of it. Sometimes you have nobody to turn to and you can't even necessarily be completely open with your board as well to let them you can't let your board know that you're panicked <laughs> 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 that's not going to give them the confidence that they need you certainly have to be transparent you know from a government standpoint you know with a board but but you can't let them you know know what you're going through emotionally because they'll just look at you like oh my god what kind of wimp did we hire
1: i want to kind of end on a lot of the listenership to this there's a wide range in the, in the audience but i think Your interview would be particularly interesting to those who have a lot of ambition. Okay. People that want to do really well financially, they want to do something bigger than just get by. And one of the things that's interesting about your story is you mentioned how important to you the time off was in your career. Why do you feel that those times off were so important?
0: Because they were so important to forming a well-rounded, peaceful, happy human being. Seriously. I mean, when you're in the stress of full-time work, you don't really get the chance to work on yourself. And so, you know, before I went to Asia, I was a miserable human being. I was always like, what's next in my career? You know, I don't have what I want. I'm not achieving what I want and all that. When I took a couple of years off that first time, I realized that that was the best thing I'd ever done. I learned more about myself by just I was actually literally doing meditation, but the time off was a, another form of meditation as well that created you know, a self-awareness and an inner peace that just made me so much better at, at my career. You know, When I actually did go back to work, even in highly stressful situations, I was not stressed out. I was very patient. I had no patience before I went to Asia and took time off. If you're gonna be a leader, boy, you better have patience. It's never going to be the way you want it to be, or the way you expect it to be. So you better like you know be able to just be patient and you know lower your expectations and see what people come back to you with.
1: When young people work for you, or they get a chance to talk with you, what do they seem most interested, or what sort of advice do you typically give them?
0: The most important career advice I give to any young person, and frankly, this doesn't matter whether you're young or old or whatever, but what I found made my career was what I like to call volunteering. And when you're the employee who volunteers for every mission that isn't assigned to somebody, that gets noticed. So you mentioned, you know, how did you get noticed in these things? Yeah, making rain was one of the things. But the other thing was, I always volunteered. If there was a hard task nobody else wanted to do, I'd raise my hand. Raise your hand. Take on the task that is not part of your job responsibility because that will get you noticed. And guess what will happen? They'll start coming to you with all the, the hard tasks and challenging tasks. And next thing you know, you'll get promoted because you're the dependable one.
1: Well, thanks for joining us today, Richard. I really, it was a real pleasure for me.
0: Awesome. This was fun.
1: Big thank you to Richard. Richard, if you're listening, thanks for coming on the show. Super fun talking to you, hearing the whole story. Originally, I was just curious about Technorati, Ian. I wanted to know why this blog search engine doesn't exist anymore. But it turned out that that bug in my ear led me to something that I was more interested in, which is this incredible journey of entrepreneurship, success and failure and Drama, excitement, and it was just really cool to hear the story. I feel like Richard would be a great candidate for a memoir someday.
2: Yeah, we actually joked behind the scenes here, Richard, about you as being Keith Richards of the internet. (laughs) So while we were producing this show, that's the name that you got. He seems like a cool guy. I think I would want to hang out with Richard. Let's
1: put it that way. He just seemed like someone that has a lot of great stories. And maybe we can hear some more on the pod in the future. If you liked Richard's story, you can let us know. This one's going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Richard Jelly Chandra. And that's spelled J-A-L-I-C-H-A-N-D-R-A. And we are going to be back. Boss, man, I got a date with you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bring your microphone, man.
2: You bring your microphone. You're coming over here to Austin in just a few days.
1: I'm about ready to make my way down there. I'm bringing my shorts,
2: man, because I don't think it's going to be cool. It's hot. I'll see you soon. See ya.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern
2: Standard Time.